the inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove, and I'm another version of Jeffrey Mishlove for the purposes of this conversation, just as Jeffrey Mishlove could be thought of as another version of you. Today, I'd like to talk about the source of psychic power. From whence do we derive? From whence do we derive this power? Most of us go through our lives most of the time as what Alan Watts, the great philosopher, called a skin-encapsulated ego. We don't think of ourselves as psychic. We're connected to our small self. We don't normally think that we have these abilities. I certainly don't. Now, I know that other people who are professional psychics may view it differently, and I hear from people uh, who are very gifted and they think of it differently, but most people don't consider themselves as uh, particularly psychic at all. Back in 1976, when I attended a conference sponsored by the Parascience Foundation at the University of London, this is the conference where I met Ted Owens, the PK man, and began a decade-long research project with him, there was another speaker at that conference, a woman named Suzanne Padfield. Suzanne Padfield was a very highly respected British psychic. In fact, she was the wife of a very eminent British physicist named Ted Baston, who was also very interested in the paranormal. I suppose that had something to do with the fact that he married this woman. He, he developed some theories concerning the paranormal, but she herself was was gifted. She started out having poltergeist activities, and she assumed that uh, these are caused by spirits, uh, which gave her a feeling of comfort because, after all, she didn't conceive of herself as a person who could do psychic things. But eventually, she learned that she could, and she gave up the belief that it was spirits doing these things. Suzanne Padfield worked for 10 years with Benson Herbert, who was the founder of the Paraphysics Lab in England and uh, operated for many years back in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, he was very prominent and, and well-known. He even published the journal of paraphysics. He did excellent research. He studied Suzanne Padfield for about a decade. She uh, was noted for having, uh, amongst other things, solved a crime, a murder that took place 1,700 miles away in Russia and around Moscow. Uh, but she also was known for doing something quite extraordinary, bending 
a beam of light under strict laboratory conditions. A remarkable feat, which she did on multiple occasions, and it was studied very intensively at that laboratory. So, the upshot of all of this is that Susan Padfield came to accept that she herself was the source of her psychic power. Now, I found that very interesting, especially in light of the fact that, of course, Ted Owens uh, was there at the conference saying that the, while he had psychokinetic abilities, he felt the source of his power, and he's insisted on that throughout his life, were the invisible, multidimensional beings he called the space intelligences. This is still a controversy within the field of parapsychology. It's a very big controversy. And back in between the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, there was huge conflicts between uh, spiritualists, people who believed that they were uh, producing uh, paranormal effects through the activity of spirits, and parapsychologists, because the parapsychologists at the time were not ready to embrace the spiritualist hypothesis. And, and for the most part, they still aren't. Although I think that's changing. Well, we can't eliminate the possibility of spirits, but does that mean we should embrace them simply because we think of ourselves as skin encapsulated egos, totally incapable of, of producing paranormal effects on our own? Of course, if you look at the history of esoteric circles, going back even thousands of years, what you'll see is that a variety of strategies were designed to enable normal human beings like you and me to perform psychic functions. The most explicit of these, of course, is the Yoga Sutras, which is quite clear that when you learn how to concentrate and enter into advanced altered states of consciousness where your mind is as clear and calm as the surface of a lake on a peaceful day that can reflect perfectly the re environment around it, that all sorts of powers or siddhis open up to you. And they do that because of uh, the fundamental equation of Hinduism, Atman equals Brahman. The deepest part of yourself is the equivalent to the essence of the whole universe. So, given that equation, why do we need to have a psychic power only activated through the intervention of occult forces, spiritual entities, extraterrestrials, other dimensional beings, deities, aliens, etc. That is the horns of the dilemma that we face when we look deeply at this question. Now, I studied Ted Owens for years. He claimed that he did have 
psychokinetic abilities. He's had them, I think, really uh, since he was a young person. He describes the events in his youth that suggest he was born with a certain amount of talent and into a family that was accustomed to psychic functioning. But he claimed that his abilities only opened up after some sort of uh, paranormal contact with higher dimensional entities. How can we dispute that? That's his experience. And yet, on the other hand, when it comes to empirical science, the evidence for the existence of any of these invisible entities is iffy. I certainly don't mean to discount it entirely. It's quite possible, and I'm inclined to think we live in a world where human beings, living human beings with their brains, have a certain amount of psychic functioning simply by virtue of being human, by having a mind and a body. I think everybody's body, for example, functions as a psychic antenna. So, the question is, what are the limits of individual psychic activity? I like to bring up at this point a fascinating case from the 1970s that came out of Toronto. There was a society, the Toronto Society for Psychical Research, where this experiment originated. It has become the subject of a book, Conjuring Up Philip. And this is a situation in which the uh, group of paranormal researchers in Toronto decided to emulate certain strategies developed by a, a researcher in England named Kenneth Bacheldor. Bacheldor showed that he could replicate certain types of paranormal phenomena, uh, like table levitation, by emulating, developing a protocol that uh, emulated what he perceived to be the procedures used by the 19th century spiritualists, which was basically to get together, sing songs, tell jokes, and enter into a kind of a group altered state of consciousness that allowed these things to occur. So, the group in Toronto wanted to see if they could distinguish between their own innate abilities and the abilities that might be due to a, a spirit of some sort, an invisible agency, an occult entity. So, they created an imaginary story about a ghost named Philip, who died tragically, as you might experience in a gothic romance, and was still haunting the barricades of the castle where he died. And uh, so, that's the story. And they sat in a circle, like a typical spiritualist group holding a seance, and they began to receive table wrapping, which was very common. Uh, in fact, the whole spiritualist movement began uh, in the 19th century in Hydesville, New York, with uh, the Fox sisters who were known for table wrapping. That's a very controversial story, and maybe someday I'll go into greater detail about the Fox sisters. But the point here is that this table wrapping would respond, you know, two knocks for no, one knock for yes, and in different ways could spell out letters, and, and they could dialogue with this entity through the wrapping sounds. 
and the raps began interacting with the group as if it was, in fact, their imaginary ghost, Philip. Isn't that amazing? You see, they created, well, you could call it an egregore, a tulpa. The idea is that through their imagination and through the energy of the group coming together, people who uh, were normal, skin-encapsulated egos without any great history of psychic functioning were able to produce paranormal raps. And the raps were indeed paranormal. In fact, they were measured acoustically. And one could see that the acoustical envelope of these raps did not follow the signature that you would expect if the raps were made manually somehow by wrapping your knuckle, for example, on the wood. These raps were different acoustically and could be distinguished from manual rapping. So, it was an authentic paranormal phenomenon occasioned by an imaginary story. That would be very consistent with the point of view expressed by Suzanne Padfield. And it makes me question how much power of a psychic or paranormal nature is latent within, let us say, latent within everyone. We don't know the outer limits of normal human psychic functioning, let alone functioning that is occasioned by uh, invisible entities, whether they be spirits or aliens. And we don't know where one leads off and the other begins. We don't even really have good tools yet to determine this distinction. I'm reminded of a statement made by Terence McKenna, the great psychedelic explorer, who at one time talked about the images that people were having of aliens, particularly under the influence of psychedelic drugs. People encountered spiritual beings under psychedelics. And Terence McKenna said, well, the, these beings look so strange. They look like beings from another planet, truly. And uh, Terence said, are we so alienated from our own depths that when we see who we really are, we think it must be an extraterrestrial, perhaps. He's referring, one might say, the daimon, the daemon, the, the, uh, or demon, <laughs> that potentially exists within each of us. I've referred earlier uh, in my monologue on initiation to the entities described by Rudolf Steiner as the guardians of the threshold, and I suggested they are nothing other than your own repressed shadows. Interestingly, in, in a subsequent conversation with James Tunney, he reminded me that, well, there are also, in his opinion, and the opinion of many, many people, including myself, to be honest, there are such things as external invisible beings. We can't rule it out. And uh, there are good reasons, in my view, to accept for example, that uh, discarnate entities exist. We survive the deaths of our own bodies. 
Still, the question is how much ownership are we willing to take of our own abilities? Can we be like Suzanne Padfield, who at the end of the day was able to say, yes, I can bend a beam of light with my mind, and I don't need the help of spirits to do it? Well, I'll leave you with these thoughts and ask yourself, are you willing to own the possibility that you could function as a psychic person with psychic powers, both clairvoyant and psychokinetic, what would that mean for you if you owned that possibility for yourself? Have you faced the implications of that? Or do you feel, for example, that your life is touched by spiritual beings, by angels, by deities? by aliens of, of different kinds that you are convinced are completely separate from yourself? Or are you like Susan Padfield, perhaps at a point where you used to think of these beings as being separate from yourself, but you're open to the possibility that they are parts of your own depths from which perhaps you are alienated in one way or another? I don't have any answers for you. I'm still puzzling through these things myself. These are questions to which parapsychology has yet to come to terms, but they are questions well worth asking. So I'll leave you with those thoughts and thank you for being with me and thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.